This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related and hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. On this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, we talk new filmmakers, talented writers and directors whose brand new features are worth seeking out at your local multiplex, Blu-ray emporium, or internet service. Stephen, so good to sit across from you once again (laughs) in the booth, in the sound booth. No kidding. Nice to be back. uh, Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and (laughs) bushy-faced here on this episode of Lends Me Your Ears. Yeah, and so we're talking today about uh, new directors, directors who have really made a splash in the last decade or so. And uh, I was thinking, like, criteria for this, of course, and I'm like, okay, so do they have to have made one film, two films, three films? Like, how how many movies does a filmmaker need to make before they really manifest with a voice? Sometimes, you know, they do it from the get-go, but it's rare. Uh, and I, I would say that uh, that there are a lot of, of great filmmakers in the last year that I've watched that have come out. Now, maybe I'll mention them at the end that have 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 impressed me with their first film. Uh, but the, the list that I have are people that have been around for at least a decade. One actually has been around a lot longer and I had no idea. I've just noticed his work in the last maybe his last three films, and I didn't realize he'd actually been making feature films since the 90s, so that, oh, that was a little embarrassing. Anyway, I'll, I'll admit and then reveal all, but <laughs> but it's funny what these these uh, these podcasts do is force me to to educate myself on these on these subjects but but it was I think I think it was Jeff Nichols film uh, midnight special that sort of prompted this idea yeah that it was it was nice to go back and revisit uh, his filmography and see something like take shelter for example um, I still haven't seen uh, his his previous film but uh, I, I'm hoping it shows up on Netflix or, or somewhere. Uh, in the near future, but but uh, definitely has a, a very singular point of view. He obviously likes working with Michael Shannon, which is yeah. always a good thing. Yeah, Shannon uh, shows up, in, I gather, in all four of his movies. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and he 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 has a, a a neat take on kind of how screwed up the world is, and and, and the way he reveals his his stories uh, piece by piece, I really liked. I know some people have have found fault with 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 that that they don't get all the information up front, but or the backstory we're so used to origin stories we need to have like every piece of information but it's it's not so much about plot or 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 even character so much it's just this you know this this slow revealing of, of the situation that that he's he's placed these people in and, and seeing seeing how everything's going to fall into place by the end of it yeah i yeah absolutely and i i really love that about him i love that his storytelling technique allows for that sort of growth of of information and and i think his pairing with michael shannon is kind of the perfect pairing um i i actually haven't seen his first film shotgun stories but but uh, shannon is in that as well mm-hmm. and one thing i like about michael shannon is that he most actors, I think, become recognized because they seem so natural, like they just relax into a role and you're like, oh, well, that guy is totally that character and you feel like they're indivisible. And Shannon does that, but not because he's relaxing, but because he's tense. <laughs> yes. Like he's always so stressed and he has this like this edge of danger that 
you know, you're never really sure what he's capable of. Uh, and that might be violence. It might be uh, anger. It, it, uh, it's something to do with his physicality. He's a big guy. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that works really well in these films where we are struggling to piece together what the facts are from the beginning and and then it's revealed slowly as we go through it. Sometimes I look at him I just I'm just reminded of Richard Keel who played Jaws in the in the in the James Bond movies for some reason. I just that that kind of big forehead and and square jaw I guess is but you know obviously a much better actor than Richard Keel. But uh you know the, the, watching him explode in that scene at the Lions Club dinner and take shelter. I mean I, that that was riveting. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Know, especially cuz it's Eli from from uh, Shia Wiggum, I think his name is, who played Eli on Boardwalk Empire. It's just weird seeing them play out this variation on a previous relationship from a completely different uh, uh, franchise, I guess, for lack of a better set, uh, word. But but uh, and I I'm really curious to see him play Elvis. I guess he's yes. he's Elvis and Elvis meets Nixon. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. Uh, which should be very unusual. I, I gather it's not. Uh, he doesn't do a caricature. He basically plays kind of a more of a low key version of it which is probably you know considering that uh, how many pills Elvis was on that might be the way to go yeah I think you're right Um, but Jeff Nichols we should mention the movies that he's made uh, Shotgun Stories Mud Take Shelter and uh, Midnight Special, I believe that's the one. Those are the the numbers that he's yes. he's done. And Midnight sure. Special is is for those who haven't seen it. It's just recently been in cinemas. Uh, has it has a real, I would say, a Spielbergian kind of quality. That sort of early Amblin, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, ET sort of. Uh, thing going on where there's this very there's a sense of wonder and a sense of uncertainty and fear in the characters uh, and I, I don't want to say too much about it because I think the joy of the film is that sense of discovery but I will say that the sort of what you learn in the first five minutes uh, Michael Shannon plays Roy uh, his buddy Lucas played by Joel Edgerton have abducted an eight year old boy named Alton Meyer from a religious community in Texas run by Calvin Meyer his his father, yeah. uh, who's played by Sam Shepard, and they're on the run in a rusty car through the night and are terrified of being stopped. Now, this boy has gifts that we discover as we go through now, uh, and that's what people are so fascinated about. And there's a there's a very particular time crunch that everyone needs to... They need to be at a certain place at a certain time, and that's part of it as well. Um, also featured in the film, Kirsten, Kirsten Dunst, and in the Francois Truffaut role, if you want to <laughs> think about... Uh, uh, Close Encounters is the ubiquitous Adam Driver, who's great in the film. I mean, he's been great in it, most everything I've seen him in, but he's especially good in this. He is terrific, and uh, and and like Take Shelter, like they make great use of the landscape. I mean, they filmed it, I think, largely in Louisiana because obviously Louisiana has a great film program in terms of uh, rewarding people who choose to film there. There's lots of resources there now because they've built up, you know, especially in the wake of Katrina, they've been encouraging film productions to come there and 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 use their varying locations um, all over the state and it's uh, it's proven to be a kind of a boon for hollywood and independent filmmakers that have chosen to use it um much like nova scotia used to be Um, (laughs) i was wondering where you're going with that i figured you you might be that's actually i didn't know i was going there but i just (laughs) but i've noticed a lot of films being made there but but he really makes i mean it's set in louisiana it's not pretending to be somewhere else um you know we go from texas to you know which is on the border there uh, to louisiana and and you know we see the bayou and the the coast and and the gulf and and uh and I noticed that in Take Shelter too, and in Mud, of course, that the the the, the sense of place in his films is really strong, and I yeah. really like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I you know I miss it when a film seems kind of generic or just takes place in a in you know some sort of Hollywood you know California based uh, 
generic zone, I guess, for lack of a better term. He, he seems really interested in the places that he sets his films. There's lots of, of geographical detail. And uh, the characters, he makes sure the characters are really connected to where uh-huh. he set these films. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, and his work with actors, I mean, you know, Mud, I think, was a big part of the reconnaissance, uh, <laughs> which time. some people have called it the way, the way Matthew McConaughey revived his career to a... Uh, uh, to an Oscar, which we'll actually mention later because one of the other filmmakers I want to talk about right. brought, allowed him to get that Oscar. Um, but Take Shelter, I think, if people haven't seen it, is a film really worth seeking out. I f- it feels like a paranoid thriller for our time with uh, concern over the economy, personal security, medical expenses, pharmaceutical dread, and environmental horror, all wrapped up in this sort of biblical parable uh, about a guy who may be going insane and he's not sure about his mental health but other but he sees visions and and he he starts to take steps in order to try to protect his family from what could be an apocalyptic end uh and that's michael shannon again and jessica chastain is plays his wife in the role it's a it's a great film yeah i i really felt a close encounters vibe <laughs> from this movie like, yes. and that's that's not a bad thing to be connected with i, th- I think it's one of uh, my favorite spielberg films because mm-hmm. it, it's it, it a it's for adults <laughs> and uh and i think i prefer him when he's making sort of adult themed films uh and so i'm it's nice to see that that has influenced somebody for the better mm-hmm. you know they're, they're not trying to make you know, an Indiana Jones or a Jaws or what have you that, that you know, they, they're looking at that more mature work of his and that that sort of singular obsession and instead of Richard Dreyfuss and, and a mound of mashed potatoes, it's, it's uh, Michael Shannon in a backhoe. And, uh, you know, having witnessed uh, a couple of people close to me go through uh, struggling with uh, paranoid schizophrenia, you know, schizophrenia. It's, it's, you know, it's, it felt very realistic uh-huh. in the way that it gradually comes on. He's trying to cope with it, but at the same time, he kind of falls prey to it. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes he doesn't know what's a dream and what's real, and and he thinks by removing himself from things in his life that he's seeing in his dreams that he can affect and everybody but he's seeing voices and seeing things and that's that's you know that's very similar to what uh, you know I kind of saw happening to to people in my own life. Um, but of course, there's a there's a bit of a twist and a bit of a and you know, even saying that is maybe saying too much. But but uh, you know it, it's it's not something that's easy to portray in a film. And I think this this team of you know again I think back to like Scorsese and De Niro. But having a, a strong team of director and actor who are comfortable with each other and uh, you know know what each other is capable of is really key in making these films so successful. Yeah, I agree. And uh, a heads up for fans or people interested in, in Jeff Nichols' work, he has a second film due later this year. Uh, and this sounds to me, I've read about it, it sounds to me like that might be the Oscar contender for him. Uh, and it's um, it's called Loving, and it's based on a true story of an interracial couple in the South in the 1950s who were arrested due to their union. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so that'll be coming out in November. Yeah, I love that that they're they're mostly set in the south. This kind of new southern gothic that he's kind of single handedly carving out. Uh, you know, I, just, I can't wait to see that new that next film. I suspect the Midnight Special might have sat on the shelf for a little while, um, just because there's such a time, great time between it and its its predecessor. Um, and it kind of this is the kind of the weird dumping ground <laughs> of cinema in this. You know, between the end of the Oscars and and kind of the start of the blockbuster season, we see some really strange stuff happening in our movie theaters. But I, you know, at least it showed up in a theater here and played. You know, got a good run, so people so people could see it because I I couldn't uh, couldn't recommend uh, Midnight Special uh, often enough. No, for sure. <laughs> 
So interestingly, there are two Quebec filmmakers who are really making waves in Hollywood right now. And uh, I really admire their work in a general way. I haven't loved all of their movies, but I've got to mention them here. Uh, the first is Jean-Marc Vallée, who's 53, and totally busts my new director criteria <laughs> wide open. The first feature of his that I remember was Crazy from 2005, sort of a coming-of-age film about a kid who is struggling with his sexuality and loves David Bowie, and uh, a great a great movie. But he's been, um, Vallée has been making films since the mid-90s, and uh, and he uh, and then more recently he has uh, really come into his own with a series of films he did The Young Victoria in 2009 and then Café de Flore in 2011 which for my money is his masterpiece an incredible film about about um well, it's <laughs> a little hard to describe but it's it takes place in two time periods in Paris in the 60s and then in Montreal in the current day and there's connection between and the mystery basically was what is the connection between these two time periods as we flip back and forth between them uh, music plays a huge part in this film mm-hmm. and I think in all his films he's he's got a great sense of incorporating music in the score in the, in the, in the actual body of the film uh, a Dallas Buyers Club was the film that, that famously allowed Matthew McConaughey to uh, reach the his his uh, career peak, I guess uh, to to uh, uh, receive the the Oscar for Best Actor, uh, and then more recently Wild with Reese Witherspoon, and that had an amazing uh, musical cue, which was um, oh now I'm blanking. It was uh, it was Simon and Garfunkel um, and El Condor Pasa. Oh right, uh, which which really and it it was like we heard the beginning of it a number of times, and then right in the middle of the film as as she's kind of coming to grips with this task that she has set herself to to walk this trail we hear the actual song uh, and most recently it was Demolition a, a movie that I don't think a lot of people got a chance to see but it was in the cinemas for a few weeks here in Halifax with Jake Gyllenhaal who plays an investment banker one of those guys who who you really love would love to hate everything seems to come easy to him and he's got his whole world is working out he makes lots of money lives in New York has a lovely bride and then uh uh, you know, great life, and then his wife dies early in the film, and it's about him coming to grips with himself and his feelings, and, and one of the ways he does that is by tearing things apart. He just, physical objects around him, he needs to know how they work, so he starts to pull them apart, and, apart, and that includes uh, you know, a fridge, a computer, and he, and he starts to upset people around him by this strange, compulsive behavior. Uh, and, he, and he actually connects with a, with a woman, uh, if you've seen the trailer, you know Naomi Watts plays a key role in the film, but also her son. Uh, and it's, I, I felt like Demolition was a more personal film, and in some ways it reminded me more of Crazy and Café de Flore in, that, that in terms of what the filmmaker gets across his... his um, the kind of themes that he's interested in in family and in coming of age and connection with with other people and and definitely with music yeah sadly i've not seen demolition it it came and went uh, a little too quickly for me uh but i but i love that kind of you know central character kind of taking their life apart and putting it back together again and and uh and jake gyllenhaal seems to be good at deconstructing himself as, as, as an actor, you know, and, and can walk that line between despicable and, and, and likable. And, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly uh, what I've, what I've seen of it seems very appealing to me and as, you know, anybody, and I, you know, I, I certainly understand frustration with vending machines. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's, that's a big a, part of it. Eh? Yeah, exactly. That, that, I think that's something anybody can, can relate to, but, um, 
it's it's uh, he, he certainly seems to be an actor who can, who communicates well with with these up and coming directors in terms of of uh, you know finding something that taps into into the zeitgeist as it were uh, and uh, and kind of becoming us on the screen. I totally, guess. yeah. And Gyllenhaal is, interestingly enough, the last two films he made before were with Denis Villeneuve, who right. is another Quebecois director, a 48-year-old filmmaker who uh, who's who worked with Gyllenhaal in Prisoners from 2013, which was actually a movie that I disliked, but uh, <laughs> but I but yeah, he was in that. Uh, Gyllenhaal was in that, and then he was in Enemy, which was quite uh, sort of a Kafka-esque uh, hallucinogenic drama about a man finding his doppelganger in the worst parts of Toronto, like the, <laughs> the like the, the grimiest uh, uh, in most industrial uh, parts of Toronto and, uh, and their connection between two people. But uh, Villeneuve uh, made his name with a number of films in the early 2000s, Maelstrom, Polytechnique, and then more recently, Encendie, uh, before going to Hollywood, making Prisoners, Enemy. And then in 2015, he made my favorite film of his, uh, and I think one of the best films of the year, Cario, mm. uh, and that was a thriller that just sort of put me on my ass. Uh, I, I just was so impressed with how how the style of it and the the sort of directorial confidence that kept the suspense throughout the film in a way that uh, that just wouldn't let me go. I absolutely loved that film. I, I love Sicario too. I mean, I, and I'm wondering. I found it odd that it didn't quite seem to rank up there with the best films of the year and a lot, you know at the end of year lists and all that kind of stuff it didn't seem to get quite it didn't seem to have the kind of uh groundswell of acclaim that i thought because i i just you know I, we, we've been in this kind of territory before i thought of the films like traffic and and blow and things like that but this this film uh really got under my skin in, in a way that, that those films didn't and uh you know i just thought the performances and the, and the setting and the 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 Mexico uh, Texas border, or maybe it's, uh, might be Arizona actually. But anyway, the um, you know just just presented us a world we hadn't seen on on screen before, not not in the way that those previous films had attempted to, and uh, and just characters that that are unforgettable. I mean, uh, you know that that, that um, you know that, that guy who the shady operative from South America, who uh, you know you don't know what side he's playing. <laughs> it's just um, Benicio del Toro. Is, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, not Antonio Banderas. <laughs> <laughs> I hate those ads. Um, anyway, uh, uh, you know, just one of the most chilling characters of the year, and uh, you know, I, I, I could, I could see more of, of these characters. Well, it's funny because I, I've heard that they're making a sequel. Yeah, I heard that too. I'm like, Okay, well, this is that's you know. cool. I mean, Sicario isn't necessarily the kind of film you think of that would spawn a sequel, even if it had a lot of success. And I think clearly it must have had enough to to mm. want to go back there. I don't know that Villeneuve will be directing or he's involved in the sequel, but I do know that these lead characters, Josh Brolin, uh, Emily Blunt, and uh, Benicio del Toro's characters, will be back. So I mean, those those three are kind of the core of the story. And uh, and I yeah, I'm happy to spend more time with them. I mean, there it's a fascinating world that that we were introduced to. It's funny you didn't like uh, Prisoners so much. I. I'm still not sure how I feel about it. I I think I admire it more than I loved it. Like I, I like I think there was really good work being done, but it and um it it made me feel kind of uneasy in a way that I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be feeling. Um I think I could go back and revisit it. At some yeah, maybe point. I should give it another chance. I just I came out of it feeling like there was 
there was some politics there that I wasn't entirely sure of. Um, I, I liked uh, Hugh Jackman's role. He, he played to his anger in a way that he doesn't usually play. Yeah. But I felt like like the uh, Gyllenhaal either was miscast or he was mismade up because I just didn't <laughs> quite buy him as the, the cop who always gets his man. And I felt there were there were too many convenient plot issues that that kind of bothered me as well um overall it but i understand what you're saying about it being uneasy and that was something yeah, i it, think they did they did well it's an unsettling movie maybe because of that level of of intense anger and the way that hugh jackman kind of internalizes this rage throughout the film um uh, i like the fact that he had this kind of different religious background and and you know it's not something you always see i, I always find it interesting when characters have and we'll, we'll probably talk about this in our later uh, episode coming up on terrence malick i'm sure but uh but i'm always interested when when you can portray a like a a character who has some sort of faith in in a non-condescending or not you know non um you know or not satiric or whatever or, you know blow it out of proportion um so you know that's an aspect of the film that i liked the the thriller aspect of it i, I agree it do, didn't quite uh, pan out the way it was supposed to mm-hmm. and uh but and it is kind of unrelentingly grim but uh but yeah it was definitely one of hugh jackman's better performances you know considering that the next thing along i think was maybe chappy so it's like <laughs> it's like yeah he can still act yeah, um, yeah, but uh, he, he's a busy man, though. You but, never really yeah. know. He's he's singing in uh, Le Mis, and then suddenly mm. he's he's fighting robots. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, but yeah, we should mention. Speaking again, I'm I'm using every opportunity to segue here. Speaking of fighting robots, uh, uh, Villeneuve has been is starting to work on in pre production now on the sequel to Blade Runner, which for real fans of that film, I think. I think it's a great. I think he's a great talent to try and tackle a a sequel to such a beloved cult film. But uh, I know a lot of people are nervous just at the idea <laughs> of it. Because frankly, I mean, after thirty years, uh, how many sequels from with that much time between feel like they're justified? Um, you know, the fact that they've got Harrison Ford on board, I guess, is awesome. But but this is something Which I haven't is weird. Heard. But yeah, I mean, it is weird. Are I they mean, do like an Arnold CGI job on him to to make him look like like he that, hasn't like aged. That, yeah, because well, because apparently, you know, we were led to believe that he was a replicant. Yeah, but, well, that's the thing. Maybe. That's the thing that they. I mean, who knows how they're going to manage? But but it it seems to me really strange that you're kind of tipping your hat if you bring this guy back and he's aged because then he wasn't a replicant. It's like one of the <laughs> mysteries and the, one of the most delicious mysteries That's of true. the like, first I, film. I, I, I kind of like being on the fence about it. Yeah, and I, clearly we're going to know one way or the other. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's something we can sort of look for. Yeah, um, and Villeneuve is also making another science fiction film. This is one apparently he shot maybe before Sicario. I couldn't quite find out exactly when it was made, but it's it's been around for a while. It's called Story of Your Life and stars mm. Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, and I guess it's about an alien invasion. Yeah, well, there's probably a lengthy post-production on that. So yeah. probably Sicario looks like it was. It could be done fairly quick and dirty. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of obviously things like the the shootout on the border. You know, that takes a lot of planning and everything. But but um, you know, he's a guy who's probably used to working fast. And um, Roger Deakins is a cinematographer on yeah, that as well. Exactly, you know, that guy yeah. is a that guy is is a is a master. So exactly, <laughs> he knows what he's doing. Um, and I, I, if you haven't seen Ensemble, his uh, which is a French language film about a brother and sister looking into their past in. Uh, in Israel, I, I can't recommend that film highly enough. That that because uh, I wasn't a big fan of Polytechnic. I saw it and I thought, you know, I, I found it a bit cold towards its subject. But but uh, Ensemble, I just uh, 
you know, I got caught up in that film big time. There's a, that, that, it's, I mean, it's kind of a thriller. It's kind of a political thriller, but it's got this historical background to it. And uh, you really get invested in the characters, and then you kind of get thrown for a loop. So uh, if, you, if you can track it down, by all means, uh, look for that one, too. So this next filmmaker I'm really excited about. Uh, his first feature, it's called Murder Party, which I actually have not seen. I've gone looking for it, but I haven't been able to see it. I think it was a micro-budget yeah. first feature uh, from 2007. This guy is from Virginia, and I think he's in his early 30s. Uh, but the film that that I saw that really hit me was Blue Ruin, which he made after years of working as a cinematographer, and he borrowed the $160,000 from friends and family in order to write, direct, and shoot it uh, with his best friend, Macon Blair. So uh, this is a film that... I'm I just amazed at, and when I watched it on DVD, I've seen it a couple times, when I watched there's a making of that's actually really moving. It's one of the best sort of making of it. It reveals the struggles they had in actually getting hmm. this film together, and then interviewing all the cast, some of whom were professional actors, some who weren't, and uh, and talked about their maybe initial reluctance to step into this, do this film, you know, with this this fairly green filmmaker uh, and then have the film turn out to be amazing. It's a, it's basically a, a vengeance um, uh, a drama but not in the way that you usually think of one. <laughs> like a vengeance drama usually is an action film but this is a very much an indie drama too and I love the way he sort of nods to the genre conventions by, but also having having this this story of a man who's just lost in his life. He's he's completely fallen apart since the death of his family uh, in, a, in a murder, his parents. Uh, and then he um, he discovers that the, the man who is responsible, he thinks is responsible, is out of jail, and he immediately goes to intercept this person. And the vengeance happens pretty much straightforward, and it's the kind of thing that in another movie would be at the end of the movie, but this happens within the end of the first act. And then it's the, <laughs> the, the repercussions of that. It becomes kind of a Hatfields versus McCoys kind of thing where these two groups are are at each other's throats in a way and and our our hero he he sort of needs to come to grips with what he's done and take responsibility for it and and the impact on his own family as well as on the family of of this this man who he he catches and he does things to so i i don't want to say too much more than that but boy is it a good film yeah and uh from what i've seen of murder party which i think i think you can get it from a website called shutter.com uh-huh um i i i've sampled clips from the film and the trailer and some other bits and pieces and uh it looks like a major leap beyond murder murder party looks very self-conscious it's i i don't i wouldn't say tarantino-esque but it's it's trying to be kind of hip and catty and and snarky and uh-huh. where a bunch of characters have uh invited someone to a party with the intent of murdering them they're all dressed up like characters from movies one guy's dressed up like one of the baseball gang members from the warriors and another <laughs> right. person dressed up like Pris from Blade Runner and and uh, it the dialogue even in the trailer sounded very clunky and, and kind of self-conscious and and a little too knowing so uh-huh. I, I'd still like to see it but it looks like he's kind of gotten that out of his system and, and it's it looks very jokey and, uh-huh. uh, and and he's he's kind of shaking that off there's I mean there's certainly humor in Blue Ruin yes um, but of humor. course it's it's more uh, situational humor um, rather than kind of forced dialogue-y kind of snarkiness. So, um, yeah, this was this was a real surprise for me. Uh, you know, just because our, our main character, I've, I've, no, I've forgotten the character's name, but, but uh, you know, he's... You know, Dwight, he's I think. It's Dwight, Dwight. Yes. yeah. yeah. He's, he's kind of out of his mind with grief. Yes. And uh, has been for, for years. You know, he's, he's, he's 
you know, essentially homeless and, and, uh, looks a bit like me with the beard and the <laughs> and everything and and uh you know he just kind of this kind of snaps him into out of out of this kind of haze he's been living in for the last decade or so and he snaps into action but of course you know he's not uh, a physical guy he's not um you know he's not a tough guy so we don't really know what he's capable of and you know and sometimes rage and and you know you get that it's like the the mom lifting the car to save the baby kind of thing. Like, you know, he seems to be at the mercy of these adrenaline rushes that put him into these weird situations that, that occur throughout the film. And yeah, it's, it's best not to say too much about it story-wise, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unique in that you never know what what he's going to do. Like it's, it's almost like they thought, here's what you think he's going to do. And let's just make him do the opposite or just something unexpected because he's, he's not, he's not really dealing with a full deck as it were no and no, uh, and, he, and he's he's um much of the film there are many moments that are, take place in silence as you as yes. he does things and we just observe and we're like well what is he trying to do now like there's there's a lot of there's mystery in his in his sort of mental processes and you sort of piece it together because uh, he really there he doesn't he doesn't have too much to say you sort of he's known you see him from his actions and then you see him from his regret um by the end he said a few things but but it's yeah. it's not a film filled with dialogue um it's a it's it's just kind of we're just along for the ride boy it's a great ride though <laughs> Yeah, he's like this kind of reverse Anton Shurgo from No Country for Old Men. <laughs> yeah. I forgot how to pronounce his last name, but <laughs> he's like the, right, he's yeah. like the opposite of him. <laughs> like he's he's on a mission. He's he's determined. He's he'll stop at nothing, but he's completely incapable and, and really not very scary. Yeah. But you know, kind of weirdly lucky. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he gets has, away with some stuff. Yeah. Has a weird strain of luck. And I just liked all that, all those aspects of it. It's like, they really sat down and said, what, you know, what are people expecting? And then just do the opposite or do something, you know, take a, take a right angle turn to what you think sure. is going to happen. And, uh, and I guess green room is going to be opening here shortly as of this taping, uh, within the week, I guess. And yeah, it's opening across Canada, April 29th. I've seen the trailer a few times. They've been showing it at the Oxford and I was kind of like crossing my fingers because sometimes they show trailers for films that, that never arrive. Um, they just kind of show up with the film or what have you and or the distributor asked them to show it in front of other films are showing and but uh this film about a band that winds up at the mercy of a bunch of neo-nazi punks uh just looks like a great setup and it looks very smart about it it's, it looks like cr- sort of an attempt to kind of redo murder party maybe like, <laughs> maybe like just make flesh out the characters you know it seems to be very knowledgeable about punk rock yeah at least that's my gather you know that's what i gathered from the trailer at least which is something you almost never see in movies unless penelope spheres directed it so um so there's so many angles to that and plus patrick stewart is as a bad guy yeah where, you know what's not to love yeah i i saw it at the atlantic film festival last september and uh it was absolutely white knuckled like i i the the tension that that blue ruin has has been transferred to this but ratcheted up uh you know and it's uh it's and it's and it's as with a lot of great low budget films i'm seeing lately there there's um the the story takes place in a single location but it's, it's used so well in this case it's an out of the way venue kind of a cinder block in the woods in in uh, Oregon and yes the punk band basically they witness a murder and uh, then they get stuck in the green room behind the stage and everyone who runs this place and and the audience as well are you know lots of bad bad people and they're willing to do pretty much anything to cover their asses and uh, yeah this is a terrific film Uh, Patrick Stewart is great in it I I had a little bit of a uh, um, 
sort of a cognitive dissonance because I love Patrick Stewart so much <laughs> and this is far and away the most sinister that he has ever been and it made me feel it made me feel a little weird in my gut uh, but uh, yeah it's it's not it's not for the weak of heart it's mm. it's a very violent and intense film but boy is it well made uh, yeah I, I can't I can't recommend it enough does uh, does Eve Plum from the Brady Bunch show up at any point because <laughs> that was the big shocker for me in uh, Blue Ruin that at, one, at some point Eve Plum, uh, Marsha from from the Brady Bunch shows up playing a very different character, and I, I'm com- I, I thought maybe he, she'd become a staple in his movies, but I don't remember that she's in Green Green Room. <laughs> right. uh, I, don't, I don't. She she may play a part, but I don't think. Mostly the cast is a lot younger. Yeah, in this that's what one. I figured. Uh, yeah, so so <laughs> Saulnier's Green Room is is out uh, as you listen to this. So please seek it out if you are of that of of that kind of uh, fan of that kind of a film. Um, I just want to say a few nods to a couple of other filmmakers before we we wrap this up. Uh, Ryan Coogler is someone who's really impressed me with his two films, Fruitvale Station from 2013 and Creed from 2015, which was one of my favorite films uh, of last year. And and he has such a great way with character. Uh, Michael B. Jordan being his lead in both, mm-hmm. uh, they clearly have a relationship that really works and uh, Jordan's incredibly talented. And and uh, and I was remarking that, that uh, uh, to friends how... Uh, how we actually don't see very often in Hollywood and American films, uh, African-Americans having conversations with each other at length. And in both of these films, that's what you're seeing all the time. I mean, if you're watching, you know, if you're, if you're going to see, you know, Barbershop, you'll see that. But, but in, a, in, a, in a mainstream film that may have crossover intentions, that's not something you see. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's wonderful to see it. You just, I really felt like I was getting an insight into, into a culture that, that you don't see enough of in a serious independent drama. Yeah, I, I I think uh and it's such a leap from Fruitvale Station to uh to Creed. Uh and just the approach to like like I really thought I was watching the impossible take place when I was watching Creed for the first time that that he ta- you know revived a a franchise that probably should have been long since buried. Yeah, and, and the last one was actually fairly good. Like it was a good way to end it. There was no Rocky, need Rocky Balboa. Yeah, there was no need to come back to it, but holy smokes did he do a good job. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, it it, it took a a story and characters that I kind of thought I was done with uh, a, a topic that I really have very little interest in boxing in films, even though I love a lot of boxing films now that I think about it, but, but it's, it's not something I go out of my way to see. Um, and, uh, and just rejuvenated the fight sequences were, were riveting and, and maybe taking a tip from, uh, from uh, raging bull, they were all filmed, you know, in different kind of modes, you know, with, you know, with one with more cuts, one with more moving camera, um, you know, but it each each was specifically done to kind of really put you in the ring and 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 really feel the blows and 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 ratchet up the tension and 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 he got a good performance out of Stallone, which is something that nobody's done in a long, long time. So, uh, you know, and I can imagine like for for a younger director to be able to work with Stallone. Yeah, I, he's twenty nine. Coogler. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. Because I because I you know and for and you know I guess m- maybe Stallone saw that uh, you know he he needed to kind of let go of the reins on, on his, his pet project. Um, but you know, from all the stories I've heard about him, like demanding, a, you know, uh, co-screenwriting credit on every film he's in and everything like, it, you know, I get the impression that he's not the easiest guy to work with, but he must've been here. He must've yeah. kind of thought it's about credit to him. Yeah. For sure. Maybe he thought of himself when he was a, a young guy making Rocky, you know, which he, which he wrote and, 
maybe had a little sympathy for him and, yeah. and, and could make that work on the screen. Totally. I thought that was very smart. And, and uh, I, yeah, I, I would I would urge people to check out Creed, both of these films. Uh, but even if you aren't necessarily a fan, I think Creed is a good place to come in. If you've never seen a Rocky movie, I think you'll still enjoy <laughs> True. it. True. Um, so a couple other names I want to mention here. Uh, Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett, they're a team of... Have, have their creative team responsible for horror picture you're next and their last film the guest was a terrific film it was a it de- delivered pure john carpenter style excitement and uh, a sort of a co- in a comedy horror sort of way that uh, that really reminded me of 80s carpenter films and i think uh, i think those guys i don't know if they're going to continue to work together but now that they've made the guest i am I'm keeping my eyes open for for them um also wanted to mention uh peter strickland who directed Duke of Burgundy. He's a really interesting filmmaker. Mm. Uh, Ned Benson, who directed The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. Michael and Peter Spierig, uh, the Australian filmmakers who did Daybreakers and Predestination. Uh, Mark Razzo, whose film Copenhagen was a, a lovely coming-of-age film. Uh, John McClane's first film, Slow West, with uh, Michael Fassbender last year was terrific. And Sean Baker, who directed Tangerine on cell phones and made <laughs> something that was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Um, the, those guys are all pretty terrific. Um, and I should, uh, a tip of the hat to Alex Garland, who has been a, a novelist and screenwriter for a long time. His first film as a, as a director, Ex Machina, last year was wonderful. Um, you know, and not, and so that we don't entirely make this an entire a sausage fest, I wanted to also mention. <laughs> And uh, Britt Marling, who is a co-writer and producer and star of a lot of interesting films, including The East, The Sound of My Voice, and Another Earth. And she is someone totally worth looking for in her work. She's she's done a lot of great stuff. Yeah, Sound of My Voice is fantastic. And uh, I, I, I have to say, I don't have a lot to add to that, although I'm quite looking forward to the next Ben Wheatley film. Who's, right. Uh, now, he's got enough films under his belt that he's not really necessarily a new director but but uh, I think High Rise uh, the, the thriller with uh, Tom Hiddleston based on a J.G. Ballard uh, book and when was the last time we saw J.G. Ballard uh, attempted to yeah, put on Crash screen? maybe Crash by Cronenberg yeah um, and of course before that it was Spielberg and Empire of the Sun so and, and, and you know of course you could argue whether or not those are completely successful adaptations but just the fact that he's attempting it yeah uh, it me- means a lot and it'll be something something really to look forward to when we- that comes out Wheatley is someone who I've I've had a I have a I don't have a great knowledge of his work but I I've certainly heard his his a cult has built around his 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 work especially in the UK where he's from and uh and films like A Field in England yeah. and Kill List there are, I know there are people who really love these films and, and as just on reputation alone I'm looking forward to high rise uh, Tom Hiddleston uh yeah I guess is the lead in that and and uh yeah I I think that opens here this summer so uh, it's high on my list of movies to see. Yeah, I kind of stumbled upon him by accident. <laughs> we were in Reykjavik and just needed something to do for the evening and went to see his film Sightseers at a local theater in, in Reykjavik. And, of course, you could have a beer in the theater. It was very civilized. Um, <laughs> I think people were smoking two rows behind us. And they had, like, lovely snacks. And, and we saw this crazy movie about a guy who's, like, pretending to go on this historical expedition when, in fact, he's really trying to get rid of his girlfriend. So it was a very dark comedy and, and very uh, some, some very unexpected laughs and some real... Uh, brutal, hard-edged humor in that as well, and that that seems to be the film of his that's the least like Kill List and A Field in England seem to have more kind of notoriety. But Sightseers is is really worth seeking out if you can find it. <laughs> Oh, 
Well, I hope you enjoyed our look at new and up-and-coming directors and filmmakers. Look for more Lends Me Your Ears on Stitcher and iTunes. You can reach us on Twitter at at Lends Me Your Ears. Uh, look for our page on Facebook. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page if you feel like throwing a few saw bucks our way. Also, uh, you can email us at lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to contact me directly, I'm on Twitter at at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And my Twitter handle is at Karsten Knox. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lends Me Your Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at vsoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.